We translate for those who can't understand. We write for those who can't hear. We describe for those who can't see. Subti Subtitles and accessibility for film, television and theater. Subti.com Fred, 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 Fred. Welcome to Fred Film Radio. I'm Amani Mohammed. Fred Film Radio, sono Paolo De Marchi. Tantanni sono Senso no Sokino, hanno showcase. Fred Film Radio, sono Dana Knight. Clémence Ferrilatour for Fred Film Radio, en direct du Festival de Cannes. Fred, Fred, the festival experience in 23 languages. Cinephile, you're listening to the Big Fred Tuesday, Fred Film Radio's weekly show on all things cinema with a particular focus on independent filmmaking and the international film festival scene. The show is hosted and produced by yours truly, Matt Micucci. We're still buzzing from our recent coverage of the Torino Film Festival in Italy, which we were media partners of. So over the course of the show, we will be highlighting some of the interviews that were recorded there. In order to do that, I will once again be putting my cellular Hero segment on hiatus, but we will eventually return to it in the next few weeks. Aside from all that, I have a pair of brand new interviews to share with you. One of them is with director Michael Pierce about his major new work, recently launched on Amazon Prime, Encounter, starring Riz Ahmed. But we'll also be speaking with Maria Zidar about her documentary Reconciliation, which has been screening at various film festivals as of late and was also part of this year's edition of the European Film Promotions annual showcase at the Sydney Film Festival, Europe, Voices of Women in Film. We'll be wrapping it all up in our conclusive popcorn classic segment, highlighting more essential cinephile viewing. So my suggestion to you is to fire up an audio teeny and listen to the audio waves as they fly through the air. This is the Big Fred Tuesday. Fred. Joining us at this time is director Maria Zidar. Maria, welcome to the show. Hi, Matt, and thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. We'll be talking about uh, Reconciliation, uh, your mm. feature debut, I believe, right? Exactly. It's a documentary, and it has been traveling to a number of film festivals, uh, especially as of late, and uh, was also part of the FP's Europe Voices of Women in Film Showcase at the Sydney Film Festival. So congratulations. I wondered whether we could start by maybe actually talking a little bit about you, because I understand that you have a background in journalism. And so I wanted to ask you, do you feel there is a significant difference between journalism and uh, documentary filmmaking? Yeah, there is a significant difference, of course. Um, I mean, my journalistic background did come into consideration in uh, research, especially uh, in approaching the topic and the angle, because this topic of um, the background of the story are Albanian blood feuds, so an ancient ritual, an ancient code of law that was uh, reinterpreted, I should emphasize, after the fall of communism in Albania. And um, there was a lot of smoke and mirrors um, in the background um, in the sense that um, it was in the best interest of various NGOs um, that were established after the fall of uh, communism and uh, that basically sold asylum documentation to thousands of Albanians who wished to move abroad, um, claiming that they were in blood revenge. And... Um, that's why many things that appeared even in credible Western media were simply inaccurate. Um, if you researched, uh, 
the cases and um, the background really thoroughly. Um, but in terms of when we actually got to the story and started following the story, filmmaking is an entirely different business. You're telling um, a story and emotions. But I still believe um, it's because it's a documentary, it needs to be thoroughly researched and it needs to have um, some veracity. You're not there to speculate and to twist the story. So, you know, so it fits yeah. whatever purpose you have with it. So Reconciliation is a featured of you and a tough-skinned one at that. Essentially, like you said, it revolves around the blood feud in uh, northern Albania uh, between two sides of a family. And this pro- process of reconciliation that takes place after the tragic passing of a child in a crossfire accident is really uh, something that I was not familiar with. And maybe some of our listeners or many of our listeners may not be familiar with. So what exactly is it? I mean, what does it entail? And you spoke a little bit about its origins, but I understand mm-hmm. that they are steeped in a tradition that was uh, uh, very old, but like you said, and you mentioned that a bit there, was revived some time ago. Yeah, well, the story in the film is very chaotic. So if you're expecting to see an old ritual, um, this does not exist anymore. Because in Albania, what happened was, uh, Albania was one of the last, or, or the last true remaining tribal society up until the Second World War. And all tribal society had their own sets of laws. And especially in the highlands, these were preserved. But what happened was there was a 50-year break during communism where the dictator Enver Hoxha basically eradicated all forms of religion and also tradition. So when they, um, when the new democratic government was established in the nineties and it fell, um, in late nineties due to a large number of pyramid Ponzi schemes, these old laws along with new constitutional laws and with the reintroduction of religion, um, kind of filled, filled in the void that existed after, um, this, uh, big system collapsed. And it created a lot of chaos. So to me, this uh, reinterpretation of tradition in modern, um, in modern conditions, in a modern society, which Albania today is, was very interesting because this is something that across Europe, far right populism was uh, reintroducing national heritages, of course, not, not the tribal heritage which existed in Albania. Um, and that's why I approached this topic um it it contains there is a in the film we have a modern day mediator from the capital from tirana who claims to be the representative of the old law and according to the old law uh, a year after the death of or a killing of a member of a tribe um a reconciliation process could begin and he enters into this story between these two families. But there's also the Catholic bishop um, that also enters the story as a mediator and then things get really complicated because one side, uh, both sides are Catholic, but one side, the father's side, rejects all notion of, of the canoon uh, based on his, based on theological arguments, really, and the other side rejects, uh, sorry, the other side supports the canoon. And it happens in modern day, and this um, conflict between uh, 
different value systems I found really interesting. And of course, I think it's a film about conflict. It's a conflict about on a personal level in a very patriarchal society where women never were part of these rituals or conversations or negotiations. And that's also why I felt it was really important to give it another angle because I had never seen this. It was always portrayed in a very mystical, mythical fashion. Um, no one ever showed what's going on in the background of these um, very traditional rituals. And that's why I was there. We'll be back for more on the documentary Reconciliation in a moment. Fred. We're back with Maria Zidar uh, talking about her feature doc debut, Reconciliation, which has been screening at different uh, festivals around the world and was also part of the EFP's Showcase of European Women Filmmakers Europe, Voices of Women in Film. Uh, Maria, we talked about the complexity of the topic you document in your film, but how long did it take you to research it? Well, it took us seven years to make this film from beginning mm. to end. I mean, there were some production gaps as well, but um, an average documentary takes, this kind of documentary, creative documentary takes four to five years to produce. This one took a little bit longer. And just the research, I think I spent a year and a half just researching the topic, getting connections and contacts um, so that I could bypass some, how would say, gatekeepers and gatekeepers for Western media and documentary filmmakers as well are precisely these um, NGOs um, um, who the biggest, uh, the representative of the biggest of which um, is portrayed in the film mm. uh, or is one of the protagonists in the film. Um, so just to get to the story, because this particular story that we followed was not in the media yet, the story of, of the killed uh, 18-year-old Juste, especially not in Western media. And we got to the story through the bishop and we actually followed the activities of Jean Marco, um, the um, chairman of the Nationwide Reconciliation Committee, as this is called, and I like the word committee because it has this... Um, a communist echo, <laughs> but right. that's the name, the name of his NGO in parallel for over a year and a half. So these two storylines never merged. So the Jim Marco and the father didn't know about each other. And it was by sheer accident that one day, um, the mediator found out that we were following some other case, um, got jealous, got involved in this case. Probably he thought we were making a film, a big European film just about him. And that's why he decided to step in. And um, a mm. short few months later, um, the bishop fell seriously ill. And I'm not going to reveal more because you see it in the film. Yes. But uh, so what about the family? Mm-hmm. Were they hostile towards you uh, at the start or uh, was it easy to, to, to just film them? Um, no, no, I wouldn't say hostile, but um, even my friends in Tirana couldn't believe that they actually allowed us to film for so long because these are, mm. it's a very secluded society and especially in this very sensitive process, we entered the story just a year after their daughter, sister was killed and the, there were, of course, tensions in among the, uh, between the two families and uh 
we got, it was really important for me that we got access also to the killer side, uh, to the killer and his brother, who are also two, two of the protagonists in the story. And, um, I mean, it's a human, we, we, the word that's usually used in this context is access, but it's really a human connection. Um, when I feel it was the mother base, really that, um, was crucial in giving us access, access, um, access, if you will, because when she saw that we're not there just to get something and then leave, but that we're really trying to understand and that we're following the story with empathy, it's when the door to the family was really open. Yeah. I believe. Hmm. Yeah. That's very interesting. So that's interesting because yeah, the father made these initial decisions to, because we came with the bishop and because he's a figure of authority for him. And that's why they allowed initial, initial filming, but to stay there and to follow the story so intimately for, uh, four years or we returned a year and a half later. So the overall span of following the story was five years in total was, was really long, was a really long process. Yeah. And I mean, how did you feel, uh, during this journey? Because, uh, I, I would presume that it would kind of be, you, you talked about human connection. It would kind of be difficult on a psychological level. Yeah, it was. I mean, the story, I, 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 we constructed it as a kind of a Rashomon, um, with a kind of a Rashomon approach. So each, each side of the conflict, uh, gives their own perspective of what happened. They disagree basically about everything, about why the conflict exists in the first place and uh, uh, how the girl died, uh, why she died and uh, why she was killed. And also then how to resolve it now with which value system, how to approach this problem. What I wasn't, when you asked about my journalistic background, and so journalism is... is um, Usually, even if you follow an in-depth a story in depth, uh, you don't follow it for so long, and you don't spend so much time with with the people you're writing about. Um, here, you're basically become a part of it, and uh, that's perhaps something that I wasn't so prepared for because it's one thing to stay at a distance and research something and intellectually understand it, and it's quite another thing to to be there and experience it on a physical level and conflicts are, are of course impossible to be in for anyone involved and even just to observe i'm not sure if you're if you're able just to you know observe so maybe that was the difficult i mean the emotions were so um we followed the story between one and another perhaps potential eruption of violence and during these uh, a conflict between these two how to say eruptions of violence is uh, emotionally very difficult to handle because emotions are suppressed there is all this tension and uh, passive aggressive uh, attitude there was a lot of manipulation but a lot of also concealed pain also and and hurt um and because this is a patriarchal society, men do not express these emotions openly. It's all concealed and clouded and shrouded in, in other talk, talk about religion, about which system is better or worse. But I hope I managed to convey these um, concealed emotions. 
Yeah. I mean, do, uh, this might sound like a cliche observation to make, but aside from the fact that, of course, it deals with, uh, uh, topics related to a specific region in the world, I did find that there was a universal side to reconciliation. I think you mentioned them there also speaking about empathy and, uh, and just, uh, the fact that, uh, the repression of emotions is never really a good thing. Let's face it. But were you always aware, uh, of that there would be a universal side? to your documentary? I mean, yeah, thank you for this comment. And yes, uh, that's what I was aiming for because I always felt, as I said, even the broader topic was not something that I'm not from Albania, I'm from Slovenia. So, but it wasn't exotic to me. It was something that maybe because Slovenia is also as part of former Yugoslavia country in transition. So I could understand these, this strange coexistence of modernity and, and and reintroduction of of old value system that systems that don't function but even as this it was a story about conflict and conflicts are pretty universal you get they're everywhere and also family conflicts are everywhere just so i tried to in editing we tried to explain this background to make it comprehensible for international audiences but it wasn't the focus. The focus was not Albanian blood feuds or, or their, their, their reinterpretation in modern day. The focus was, yeah, conflict. So thank you for noting that because that was our aim. Yeah. All right. Uh, Maria, it was a real pleasure speaking with you. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Red Film Radio. Let's move on to the Torino Film Festival and an interview that was recorded there by Angelo Cerbi with filmmaker Avi Mograbi, who presented his documentary there, The First 55 Years, an abbreviated manual for military occupation. The film is an account of Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territory in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, with statements from Israeli soldiers about their service there. Check it out. How did you how did you come to this idea of this film in this specific formula? Because it's uh, it's really it's really interesting to explain the base the basics of this never ending war and situation that for people that maybe like us Westerners we don't know that much. Yes, uh, the film is, um, well, you can say it's like a, a YouTube education. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, if you want to have your own military occupation, then I'm your, <laughs> you, ma- I'm your man. Uh, I will uh, provide a lot of knowledge uh, and instructions uh, and save you a lot of, uh, a lot of time and, and uh, disappointments on the way uh, in making your occupation the best. The, yeah. Uh, the, Look, the, the, the film started in a very different way. Uh, I, uh, uh, in the beginning, I thought I'd make a film that is made only of uh, testimonies of mm-hmm. soldiers. Uh, but I, uh, at the very uh, beginning of the uh, editing, I took a, a very crucial decision, and that was to concentrate only on actions, procedures, mechanisms, and orders and to omit all the reflections of the witnesses. And in that sense, uh, even without knowing at the time, I already created the manual, Mm -hmm. how to do what in order to reach a certain goal. And the goal is, of course, uh, 
to grab the land of the Palestinians and uh, 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 appropriate it uh, mm. to uh, the state of Israel. And it's actually this choice that you made will make it's very effective because the film is much more interesting and much more poignant than maybe if if you used the uh, or the actually only interviews. The fact of of, of striking of, of of taking out all the emotional part it's much more much more harder to watch. Yes, well, I agree. Uh, it, the truth is that also uh, in the in the first um, uh, edits, when there were only testimonies, it it, uh, it at a certain point uh, it was clear that uh, the the viewer will not survive it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, uh, too detailed, too long, uh, too painful, too painful, and you have too. to be an addict for testimonies, war mm -hmm. testimonies, or, or occupation testimonies. And um, uh, then uh, when, when the manual was born, um, uh, it allowed me to provide uh, a perspective uh, to uh, why all this is happening. I, I mean, we don't uh, assume that Israel is there only to torture the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. They torture, we do torture the Palestinians, but in order to reach um, a loftier purpose, uh, uh, a higher goal mm. to appropriate the land. To appropriate the land. And what is really striking watching the film is the quality of the, uh, of the testimony. Because every single person that you interviewed, they are telling you and us what they did, which were the actions that they, did, that they were forced to, they were commanded to do. And they do it in such a very detached and Like we were talking about, you know, a, a food recipe or something, and and it's really uh, it's really disturbing at some point. And I wanted to ask you if this is for you, on, on your opinion, a way for them to save their minds and and separate themselves from what they did, or if it's, uh, um, or, I mean, what I mean, what can it be? This kind of attitude. Look. Uh For the older people who testify, uh, they, they are talking about events that happened a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, they already did the processing. And obviously, uh, today they are somewhat distanced mm -hmm. from uh, uh, the emotional impact of, of uh, their, uh, uh, their actions. I think that uh, in, the, in the latter uh, testimonies in the film, in the third part of the film, mm -hmm where there are young people talking about recent years, uh, there you feel that there is a, uh, a different kind of energy that is less distanced and, and, and more uh, painful. Um, but look, we have in, inside of us endless uh, 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 lists of mechanisms how to... Uh, be able to continue to live with ourselves. Yeah. And each person, of Has course, own, uh, uh, makes up his own recipe of how to tell uh, the atrocities uh, without um, uh, uh, becoming a, a monster, without being a monster. Yeah, and, and without keep on like, blaming yourself for all your life 
and making your life more miserable, probably. Well, some do. Uh, you can see uh, some of the speakers, you can see from their body language, mm. from uh, their eyes, from uh, how they tell the stories that... Uh, yeah, they make many that, pauses, they that, make many breaks. So yeah, they have the, to the, 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 this is still uh, uh, very painful. But uh, obviously, um, uh, uh, when we uh, repeat a horrific thing that we have done in the past, We find ways of how to tell it without reliving it. To listen to the full interview, check out fred.fm forward slash UK. That's fred.fm forward slash UK. Fred Film Radio. Encounter is a new psychological sci-fi thriller starring Riz Ahmed as a father desperately trying to save his kids from a mysterious alien invasion. But the story becomes more sinister, mysterious and ambivalent as the film progresses. I had the opportunity to chat with Michael Pierce, its director, over a Zoom session. Let's take a listen. I watched the film. I thought it was great. And uh, there's so much that I want to ask you, but I kind of just wanted to start off with uh, this blending of reality and genre and uh, the, the, uh, the real with the imagined, in this case, the sci-fi genre. Uh, what is the potential that you like to explore in mixing these two? I think, I mean, I'm drawn to films that um, have one foot in a kind of observational reality and one in a subjective reality. I feel like it, it always feels like a new experience watching those movies. Um, in fact, and I return to them a lot. Like I rewatched Mulholland Drive again the other day because I feel like I'm still trying to understand through whose eyes I'm experiencing the film and what, what is real and what isn't. Um, and I just think, yeah, there's something really fascinating about doing that as you're doing a character portrait of someone who isn't sure what's real and what isn't. And what we were trying to do with this film is make a few kind of perceptual shifts so that the audience's investment in the character and their relationship with the character is becoming more complicated as the film goes on. Mm. I suppose, you know, the journey that you go on with, with Riz's character is think of un, thinking of him as a kind of hero to save it, you know, that is saving his children. And then he becomes something of potentially a villain. And by the end of the film, he's an anti-hero and it's a much more complicated character. So I think it just gives you a lot of room as a director to, to show the most complex version of your character when you're playing with those different perceptual shifts. Yeah. Well, that's definitely something that I'm going to uh, want to return to as well, because he is very complex character. But also when I think of a uh, beast too, um, I, uh, I'm also uh, noticing a similarity in the sense that these are characters that seem to be outsiders in a sense. Uh, and I wondered uh, whether you, uh, seen as you're also the writer, in this case, the co-screenwriter of the film, I wonder whether there's a side of you that finds it easy to connect with these, with this type of personality, or maybe there's something that interests you in particular with these types of existences too. Yeah, maybe I'm drawn to, yeah, uh, characters that are on the, periphery uh in some way but i think that's also the same for audiences because you know deep down everyone thinks of themselves somehow as an outsider i don't know why that is but we all identify with the outsider there's always a, a part of us that has felt like that person at one stage or not in, uh, in our life and so maybe it just creates a very strong and immediate empathetic bond with that person You know, there's a certain level of empathy that you invest in the person that, yeah, is on the periphery and is going through difficulty. Um, 
So, yeah, I think that's part of it. Some, so it's, but it's not really strategic in a way. It's not because I'm thinking like it's an easy route to get a, an audience's empathy. It's also a response to the material that I read and stories that I come across. You know, with Beast, it was a case where I felt there'd been so many serial killer movies that were either about the detective or about the perpetrator. And I was interested in this character that was on the periphery of that. It was the girlfriend of uh, someone who's suspected of these series of crimes. And I wanted to put that person in the spotlight, you know, uh, and I thought that their journey would be very epic and just as epic as the, uh, as we, you know, the detective or the killer. And in this story, you know, Riz is playing a character that's been kind of wounded and traumatized and forgotten and has been left on the periphery of society. And I felt like he, he had a very, uh, epic journey that was continuing even though you know no one knew what was going on mm. so yeah maybe it's a theme that will continue throughout future films as well uh a lot of that uh, influence comes from films comes from fiction but then uh just in the same way that i was pointing out this blending of uh, reality with the imagined the real with the imagined uh is uh, any of this inspired from the news because there's so much in this film that kind of uh reminds me of uh uh, so much that we're hearing about in the news from, of course, pandemic times to conspiracy theorists <laughs> to uh, just the tumultuousness of these times. Yeah, I mean, um, you, you never write a film in a complete vacuum, like intentionally or not, you're always going to like absorb what's going on in the culture and it's going to have it's going to be imbued in the material to some degree. I mean, a lot of it was was already there in Joe's original script, you know, that there was this invisible enemy that was infecting the population. And he wrote that idea 10 years ago, nearly 10 years ago. And mm. we had no idea, of course, that we <laughs> cut to 10 years' time that there would be this plague ravaging the land and, you know, the population was becoming infected and you wouldn't know who. But then there were other aspects that were, I think, yeah, that I kind of, it was a response to what was happening in the culture. I think there were several school shootings happening when, um, when I was writing the script and I just, I was looking at American gun culture as an outsider and finding it, it's a very shocking phenomenon, uh, you know, for us Brits and for a lot of other countries, the prevalence of firearms in, in, in America. And so I made a certain rule when I was writing the project that anytime someone pulled out a gun in the movie, they were going to exacerbate the problem. Uh, and it wasn't ever there to sort of, um, wasn't there as a solution. And that the, the sort of powerful weapons in the film were going to be compassion and understanding and communication. And that's not because I'm like a big moralizer, like I've enjoyed movie violence, you know, in, in some ways when it, 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 depending on the context, but it just felt for this film, it wasn't right and it wasn't sitting well with me, especially with regards to, you know, some of the things that were on the news. And then there were yeah, other things, like you say, conspiracy theories or heavily, heavily militarized police response uh, units that um, we, you know, I was responding to as, as I was developing the script. But I'd say the main idea that Joe, Joe came up with, it was, you know, it was a decade before the pandemic hit us. And it was just strange mm -hmm. that it started to reflect the world then. We'll be back with more from Michael Pierce in a moment. Fred. We're back and let's carry on with our conversation with director Michael Pierce about his latest film, Encounter. 
uh, speaking of which, actually, uh, we were talking about it earlier, the complexity of the character that Riz plays in this film. He is really, really complex when I think about it because he's, he's so ambivalent. I mean, traditionally, it's some, it's in sometimes in throughout the history of cinema, I guess, the figure of the hero would not have been questioned as much as perhaps it was in the seventies. But even now, I guess, uh, in, in your film, he is placed in this situation where he could potentially be the unquestioned hero. But then as the story goes on, you see that there is more to it than that. Do you think that uh, there's a reason why, and I'm asking you, obviously, as a filmmaker, there is this maybe honesty in portraying masculinity in these types of uh, contexts, in these types of narratives? Yeah, maybe, you know, there is a cultural conversation, of course, that's going on about masculinity or you know a buzzword is toxic masculinity and i think a lot of that uh, you know is is fascinating to see that evolve and there's a kind of shift in the culture about what is a positive portrayal of you know masculinity i suppose what maybe is different now is that there's more of an embrace uh, at least in films where a kind of hyper masculine character can show vulnerability you know and i was quite interested that that be the climax of the movie um and that was going to be the hurdle that that character had to get over you know that were you know he he's so driven to protect his children and the um the identities of being a protector and being being a hero and being a savior are very powerful identities for Riz's character but they've kind of trapped him as well it's meant that he couldn't yeah. expose his vulnerabilities uh to anyone and yeah so whether you know i don't know if we would have made this film the same way if it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago um i think that's you know that, that there's it's a kind of extra freedom that you have now that you can have a richer portrayal of a male character yeah. on screen yeah and when you say trap then do you also mean maybe trapped uh in uh, expectations that people have of what I don't know, a man is supposed to be, a man in his late 30s is supposed to be, is supposed to have, at some point in the film, without giving much away, uh, too much away, there is a character that lists things that he doesn't have and that could potentially make him dangerous. And I feel like a lot of people could identify with that. <laughs> yeah, and it's maybe, I know it's a generational thing as well. Like, I know yeah. that when I talk to friends about our parents, you know, that they... Uh, there's a certain threshold uh, when it comes to talking honestly and candidly about your feelings or what you're going through. That is just uh, very, you know, it's a very different threshold than we that we have as a generation. But I'm sure for you know our parents, they were more you know liberated to talk about their emotions than at least their parents were. So it's it's kind of you know, it's it slowly opens up, uh, and I'm sure the next generation uh, are much more like in tune and engaged with speaking about, you know, mental health issues or any, any vulnerabilities that they have. But I think, yeah, I think his character, I mean, me and Riz created a kind of rich backstory for his character from, you know, from when he was born and, you know, what drew him to go into the military and every, um, every stage of his military career. And what we landed on was that he was someone that was, put into different foster homes and they weren't all good environments. And he never had uh, a father figure uh, to protect him. And he was very weak and he was very vulnerable and exposed, um, particularly being a South Asian kid in the area that he grew up. And so we thought that was a really interesting sort of origin story for the character. And the thing that drove him 
was that he was going to become the person that he never had when he was a kid. And he was going to become a protector. And that's what it was important to him. And as much as that's great and there's something noble in that, it's kind of, it's, it's defined him too rigidly that he can't show weakness. And that's become his flaw. And he must need his children, the next generation, to, um, um, he must expose that flaw to them uh, to help heal that wound. And so he's kind of, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so kind of those kind of backstories which are really interesting. The meme is didn't want to explain in the script in the film, and I only wanted to uh, allude to it briefly in the script. But it's important for me and him to know, as the yeah. you know actor and director, to know what's brought the character to that stage. Interesting that you would say that. I, I'm actually running out of time now, unfortunately, so I only have <laughs> one time for one more question. But thank you for sharing that about, uh, you know, telling us a little bit about what shaped his performance because it is a complex character. I wanted to highlight, though, that in this complexity, there is, the film does offer occasional chances to smile, too, because he is trying to be charming to the kids. Uh, and so uh, trying not to frighten them too much about the seriousness of the situation that they're experiencing together. And so I, I, I actually appreciated that as well. So just uh, kind of briefly as, 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 a, as a final note, uh, how was that? Was it difficult to establish that dynamic with the kids too? Because essentially for a lot of the film, it's just the three of them and in an enclosed space in the car. Yeah, I think once it was really about making the right casting choices. You know, I can't remember which director said it, but it, uh, uh, I'm probably going to misquote them. But it was something to the effect of like, 90% of directing is casting right. And once you've got the right actor in the right role, you know, and the chemistry works, then you can sort of stand back a bit and let the actors, do, you know, discover it for themselves. And so it was really important for me when I was doing the casting process that I found a very, you know, personal and deep connection with, with, uh, with each of them. And so my instinct told me that if I can connect with them and I've, you know, and I found them very sort of... Uh, genuine and generous actors and young men then I thought that they were going to connect with each other and so my job was to try and give them the space to discover that connection on set and of course working with children is you know it's a slightly different way that you've got to work but for me it was it was more about just giving them freedom um, than trying to coax a performance out of them I wasn't trying to manipulate them to deliver a performance I just wanted them to give the, give them the freedom to find an authentic way to to sort of explore the scene. All right, Michael, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it, man. Fred. Let's carry on revisiting our recent coverage of the Torino Film Festival by listening to Angelo Cerbi's interview with Micaela Gonzalo, director of La Chica Nueva, a film about a young woman's journey of self-discovery as she travels to Rio Grande on the island of Tierra de Fuego in southernmost Argentina to join her half-brother. Take a listen. So it's a very political film, which has a very strong feminine character. Many, fem ma many female good characters, actually. Thank you. So uh, what brought you to tell, to tell us this story? So what, which was the spark that started everything? The main spark, it, it was that I really wanted to tell a story about someone that wants to be included in this world and show how difficult it is. This world is easy if you are included, but if you're not, if you don't have a job, if you don't have uh, a family that supports you, it's really hard to get 
inside. So mm -hmm. I wanted to tell the story about a girl because for uh, young girls in Argentina and in Latin America, it's very difficult to be included in in the laboral world. Mm -hmm. And and you also you also choose a specific part of Argentina to tell us the story. So, so we are not in Buenos Aires. We I mean we're not in a big city. You you selected a specific area. Why? I wanted to tell a story in Patagonia without the landscape because uh, everyone knows Patagonia because of the lakes, the mountains, it, which are extremely beautiful. Yeah. But over there, there, there are also many factories <laughs> that are not being mirada. Uh, they're not being seen. seen yeah. yeah. There is a, a, a very interesting evolution of the of the <clears throat> of the character in terms of our consciousness of herself. So at the beginning of the film, she's much more timid. She's much more close and in herself. She doesn't know what to do, and she builds up this new consciousness throughout the film through different through difficult times. Um, is it how how, the, how does this story build in your head? I mean, how the the, the development of her character was uh, was. Uh, created okay uh, I started working when I was really young <clears throat> and I come from a working class family and it's quite the story of me and a lot of other women that realized that the fight was together and not alone and not individual so in that in that area it's a very feminist fem feminist film but it's a story about I think that the, the women's in the world that perhaps at the beginning you think that you have to fight by yourself but the actual fight is all together if not the, the, it won't be any any change and this is actually the, the same concept that, that created the, the, you, the workers' unions, you know? I mean, are you, are the workers' unions were, were, were made for that. And in the film you show this, uh, how difficult was it to put everybody together, to all the workers together, in order to fight with the, for the, against the owner that wanted to close the deal, that wanted to close the factory, that wanted to, to, to cut down some salaries and everything. So um, was there any... Any specific uh, real things that happened in your life or some people that you know that were included as an inspiration to tell us the story? Uh, yes, quite. Uh, during um, the last years in Argentina, we had uh, an, awful, um, an awful present and... There were a lot of uh, despidos, unemployment. Yeah. So we, uh, I went to a few manifestations, and they throw us uh, gas, and they were with guns. So it's pretty sad, but that's what they were doing. So this was so the the, the fact that the workers were used and not listened not listened to was something yes. that happen actually in your life listen I want to ask you how difficult it is to shoot in Patagonia um, weather wise because you know because you, your film yeah, uh, conveys windy. coldness you know the coldness of the of, of mm -hmm. the nature is really is really tangible yes and Rio Grande it, it's one of the latest cities in the world it's particularly windy that's why you can hear a lot of wind uh, in the movie 
it was hard, but people are really warm. Mm -hmm. uh, people over there. The movie is shot in an actual uh, taking factory with with the workers that took the, that factory, and they are really warm. And the local government was really supportive with uh, with the film. Even we had no budget, and mm -hmm. um, we still have no budget. <laughs> but it was yeah, they were really. <laughs> it works anyway. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How long was the shooting? Four weeks and a half. Four weeks. So it was. Oh. That's good enough. Yeah. I mean, you have enough time. Not much, but enough Never time. Never enough time. Never enough, of course. Of course. You know, their directors always want to add more weeks. I know that. Well, thanks a lot, Michaela Gonzalo, the director of La Chicana Nueva, for having been with us. I'm Andrea Cherby for Fred, the Festival Insider. Fred Film Radio. Cinephile, welcome to the conclusive segment of the Big Fred Tuesday, where every week I highlight a film that I feel is essential cinephile viewing. This segment I like to call Popcorn Classics, and this week's Popcorn Classic is The Clock, directed by Vincente Minelli from 1945. Briefly, the story is that of a GI en route to Europe who falls in love during a whirlwind two-day leave in New York City. Starring as the lead couple are Judy Garland, who was married to Vincente Minelli at the time, and Robert Walker. At heart, this wartime romance is a film about two lonely souls meeting and they continue to be drawn to each other even as they attempt to part company. What is pretty amazing about this film is that unlike many that tell similar stories about such sweeping romances, the script avoids being overwrought and melodramatically soap opera-like. Glimpses of realism are present despite the general poetic vibe of the film that not only due to the presence of Judy Garland in the lead role would make one believe that at any moment the cast will break out into a song. The story is full of charm and touching pathos with an ending that wrenches the heart. The city and the Pennsylvania station clock where the two characters first meet and later agree to meet up again is a character in its own right, a looming presence over the whirlwind romance that sort of dictates its time frame and forward motion. It's possible to find this film's influence in future works, but to me there's something about it that also recalls the films of old, including such masterpieces as Sunrise by F.W. Murnau, but also some of the works that was being done by Powell and Pressburger in Britain at the time. I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's a timelessness about it, quite ironically, that makes it wonderful to experience to this day, and for this reason... I solemnly declare it a popcorn classic. I give it five cups of popcorn and five cups of soda and five of those pocket watches that you don't see around anymore. And that's all for this episode of The Big Fred Tuesday. Join me again next week for more cinephile conversations and check out fred.fm for more content. Till the next time, this is Matt Micucci signing off. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay strong, stay cinephile and stay tuned to Fred Film Radio, the festival insider. Fred, Fred, Fred. Fred Film Radio, this is Nicole Comotti here at Venice Days. Fred Film Radio, sono Chiara Nicoletti. Angelo Acerbi put Fred Film Radio on the Festival de Venice. Fred Film Radio, Zvami Sombor Pretershik. Fred Film Radio, Radio Film of Fred, Stay Strone, Anna Tatarska. Fred, Fred, the festival experience in 23 languages. Fred Film Radio, 24-7 on Fred.fm and smartphone apps.